0: Hey, everyone. Before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On the Margin. You can subscribe to the Blockworks Macro YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. If you could, leave a rating interview. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. Welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I am joined by the one and only Lynn Alden. Lynn, welcome back to the show thanks for having me back Happy to be here yeah we were just saying before this it's been too long uh, since we last caught up so I'm really looking forward to this this chat and interview
1: yeah me as well and I, I've enjoyed uh, a number of the shows you have on your network definitely doing good work
0: oh thanks I really appreciate that um so we've got a lot of ground to cover here and why don't we just jump right in and maybe we could use your most recent piece that you put together as a jumping off point the title here is do high interest rates fix high inflation and one of the points that you really drove home in that piece is what are some of the proximate causes of inflation because it's not always the same thing. And you've talked about uh, sort of bank growth, bank lending growth versus fiscal as drivers for inflation. So maybe at a high level, could you kind of just unpack the what were you, the point that you were trying to get across in this article?
1: Sure, absolutely, and this, this ties back to my 1940s theme that I often bring up. Um, mm. So a lot of people they have uh, recency bias when they think of inflation. Almost everybody thinks about the 1970s. Um, you know, it's, it's basically it's like, okay, how do you get inflation down? You become Paul Volcker and you raise interest rates, and that's kind of the, the the axiom that people operate with with inflation. Uh, but when we look back in history, over you know more countries, more sample size in terms of length, we see that there's actually multiple different types of inflation. There's different causes of inflation, and uh, you know I think we can kind of put that into three categories. Um, the one category that's present in in all the different ones is that there's some, there's some degree of supply constraint. We don't have infinite resources. So if you had infinite resources, like let's say our entire co- economy consisted of software, you know you might not get corresponding price increases with increasing the money supply. Um, so generally, what you see in 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 times of uh, inflation is that you run into some real world constraint. In the '70s, for example, U.S. oil production peaked in 1970 after almost, you know, like a century of just every almost every year's up, structurally up, uh, and so we became more reliant on imports, which which made us more geopolitically exposed, um, and so that was a constraint uh, that that then made so that that larger than normal money supply growth does have. Uh, pretty tangible consequences. So that's always a factor, and, and it takes different forms. But then the other two factors are the other side of the equation, which is generally an expansion of the money supply. And then the question is, where's where's that expansion of the money supply coming from? And there's, there's really two main ways that money supply in the in the modern economy uh, happens. And the one that most people think of is bank lending. So as as banks as velocity increases, as loan as loan creation increases we get more and more IOUs, uh, basically deposits, chasing a similar amount of goods and services, and so you get inflation. Um, that was in the 1970s, that was the primary driver of money supply growth, loan creation, uh, because you had the baby boomer generation, which was born starting in the late 40s, early 50s. They were turning 25, 30 throughout the the 70s and then into the into the 80s, where they were entering their home buying years, which is when people start making use of credit. So due to demographics reason, uh, we had f- like more, like higher than normal rates of loan creation. So fast money supply growth. And then you added on, I mean, you, know, you had significant fiscal deficits. They weren't huge, but they were there. And then you also had the oil problem. So we had a big toxic recipe for inflation. Um, whereas you look in other periods, the other driver of money supply growth ends up dominating, which is fiscal deficit. So if you have large fiscal deficits, especially if they're monetized by the central bank, then it doesn't really matter if banks are lending or not. Money's just being handed out. It could be handed out in stimulus checks, it could be handed out in soldier salaries, it could be handed out in, you know, stimulus to build uh, new new uh, manufacturing plants. Whatever the case may be, it's it's going out into the economy. Uh, and it's being created from new reserve creation, uh, and so when you get those large fiscal deficits, um, that's a you know it's a similar end result as money creation, except the causes are different, uh, and that's what we saw in the 1940s, and that's what we saw here in the 2020 so far, which is that the inflation in those eras was not because banks were lending at a higher than normal rate; it was because the government was running large than normal deficits to respond to what they what they perceive as a crisis. Um, And so the challenge there is that the tool of raising rates is primarily effective at trying to slow bank lending. It makes it less attractive for people to borrow money uh, and therefore can potentially suppress that excessive rate of of money growth. But if, if large government deficits are what's driving inflation primarily, then higher rates don't really tackle that because governments are relatively rate insensitive. They don't usually say, oh, well, now, because bond yields are 5%, we're going to get together and we're going to trim the military budget. It just doesn't really happen. And so in practice, uh, you have a rate insensitive source of money creation. And the best that higher rates can do is offset that. So you could suppress the private sector enough that you get inflation down temporarily, but you're not actually addressing the core problem. It, it's like you know, It's like one kid ate too much, so the other kid, you have to give them half the food. So that your average food per child is is the same, right? It it doesn't really—you're not actually addressing the the problem, which is the one kid ate the other kid's food, Um, and so that's kind of the approach that they're doing because the the Fed doesn't really have other tools. Uh, It's mostly a fiscal problem, and central banks aren't really in the political position to say, "Well, it's you know, it's not our problem." Uh, Maybe they should, uh, but that's kind of where we find ourselves in, which is that this is mostly a fiscal-driven inflation. And the tools that address it are mostly fiscal, not monetary.
0: It's actually funny, you know, in some of the, I I assume you probably do as well, listen to some of the FOMC pressers. And in this most recent one, or maybe it was the one before that, Chair Powell actually did get a question about, hey, you know, just to paraphrase, hey, Chair Powell, a lot of the, there's an enormous fiscal deficit that we're running to the the tune of $2 trillion per year. And that's projected 10 years out into the future. So we're going to be at $50 trillion debt in 10 years. Are you? do you plan to talk to fiscal policymakers? And he said, absolutely not. And I just thought that was a funny, I and mean, he was pretty clear with that response. I don't know if there are any sort of backroom dealings, but it seems like he's drawn a, a pretty clear line in the sand.
1: Yeah. And I think one thing I think that he could be criticized for is that during the pandemic, uh, he called for more fiscal, right? So early on in, in 2020, you know, basically, when they were already doing their monetary, they they dropped rates to zero. They were doing uh, QE and swap lines and all this stuff. And he said, you know, really, what we need is fiscal. It was it was a rare case of a central banker getting somewhat political mm. and saying, this is a tool we need right now. That's not ours. It's it's out of our hands. Uh, whereas you're not seeing similar directives now, where he says, what we need is less fiscal, right? He's he's basically saying that he'll he'll dance around it and say yes, the, the fiscal situation is unstable, but that's not our purview. Like he's not actually calling for anything. Yeah. Um, and he could call for less fiscal um and you know the challenge and a lot of us in this space you know like the you know the digital asset space and and it, you know also in, in adjacent spaces like the gold space part of why we're in this space is because we think the current system is unsustainable if we mm-hmm. thought it was sustainable we might not be in these spaces we might be in the in the existing space and you know, one of the challenges that makes this environment, say, different than the 70s, going back to the fiscal versus lending uh, concept. So in the, in the 70s, the federal government had 30% debt to GDP. Uh, and like I said, most of the money creation was happening from bank lending. So when they raised rates, you know, it would in- increase the the interest expense from the government. Uh, which is in some way, stimulative. Ironically, it's pouring money into the economy. But that was a much smaller impact than it would have dampening that loan creation, right? So it wasn't an mm-hmm. effective, effective uh, inflating fighting tool. The problem in, say, the 40s or the 2020s is that if you have over 100% debt the GDP and your deficits are what's primarily causing inflation, then raising rates actually increases your deficit. And it increases the deficit at a higher rate then the impact is likely to have on loan reduction in the private sector because you're you're expanding a bigger thing faster than you're reducing the smaller thing which is loan creation so you get this you get this kind of period where it seems like it's working at first because you are you know you're putting pressure on the private sector uh you're slowing things down but then you're building this structural new new source of money creation which is all of these larger and larger deficits pouring into the economy uh, and so I, I just think it's it's a very challenging political position because you know you, we don't really have the part, you know we don't really have the bipartisanship to address the budget directly. and then the central bank doesn't really have the tools to address it, but they have to act like they're doing something. they They can't they don't really have the purview to say, this is not our issue. So they have to kind of act, even if the act itself is not actually attacking the direct problem.
0: Yeah, Lynn, it's such a good point. You actually had a, a quote in your piece that really stood out to me. Because, you know, To use your words, at the current time, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is treating the 2020s, which is fiscal-driven inflation, in a high public debt environment, as though it's like the 1970s, which was lending-driven inflation in a low public debt environment. He's sharply raising interest rates to try to quell bank lending, even though bank lending wasn't the cause of the inflation in this cycle. And to try to maybe put together and see if I'm summarizing correctly what, what you just said was... It's actually exacerbating the problem because bank lend. While interest rates curb some of the the high lend, the bank lending driven part of the inflation, that's not ultimately the problem. Really, that's the fiscal deficit. So as we raise in uh, interest rates, we're actually increasing the amount that we need to spend on an annual basis. Right? We've all seen those charts of the interest rate expense going parabolically up and to the right. And we know now that right the the way that the Fed does that, or the way that the U.S. government pays the interest expense, is to actually borrow more so it's this sort of negative reinforcing cycle of actually exacerbating the real problem is that a good summary of it
1: yeah i think so and and the challenge with measuring it is that there are different propensities to spend on different types of stimulus so in generally larger deficit is going to be Uh, you know, inflationary, but not to the same amounts. So for example, if you give a small check to, uh, you know, people in the bottom 50% of the income spectrum, they're going to spend it uh, pretty quickly, right? So that's going to be a a high velocity thing. If you give Warren Buffett more money, it's not going to affect consumer prices. He's just going to go buy stock with it, right? So that's like two extreme examples. Uh, And so when they're increasing deficit through the interest rate channel, you know the challenging thing there is that the propensity to spend is, seems to be somewhat in the middle, and it's hard to predict. So you know when you, when you have higher interest expense and overall larger deficits from this higher interest, you we say okay, where does that money go then? Who who are we essentially stimulating uh, by mm. increasing that interest expense? And so the answer is that about you know about a quarter of it flows out of the country because they you know foreigners own uh, about a quarter of the debt. Um, another chunk goes into the social security fund. Um, mm. And so that that kind of stays at least for a while. I mean, if, you know, about about a decade that gets drawn down to zero. But at the current time, that kind of stays in limbo. Some of it goes to the Fed, um, but the problem right now is that the Federal Reserve has it's operating at a loss. Uh, it, its its liabilities are yielding higher than its assets, and so money that goes to the Fed actually goes out to the banks. Um, basically, so mm. that that's kind of going to the banks, and then the rest of it is the part that's actually directly owned by domestic sources, which is the majority of it, and so that's going to insurance companies, banks, uh, pension funds, um, just large wealthy holders that own uh, bonds, and that includes a lot of retirees. So a lot of retirees that have you know half a million portfolio, a million dollar portfolio, um, you know they're not super rich. I mean they work decades and decades and decades, and now they have a retirement uh, fund. They're getting more income. Uh, on that fund, which means they can spend on travel. They can spend on restaurants. They can spend on their, on their, they can help their grandkids get a wedding, you know, that they might not otherwise mm. be able to afford. They can subsidize, uh, you know, parts of their family members. And so that money does get out into the economy. It just gets out a little bit slower and less evenly than it does if you just did like a child care tax credit or, a, or a, you know, stimulus check or something.
0: Yeah. So Lynn, where does that leave us just in terms of both the cyclical and sort of secular inflation trend? Because we've all seen the charts of CPI coming down. CPI is now actually below core and core PC is what the Fed really cares about. That's been a little bit stickier. We've got uh, outright deflation in terms of energy right now. But you know, where do you think, given all of these different factors that we've just been talking about, what does inflation do over the course of the next decade or so? Is it persistently higher or have we really seen the peak?
1: So I think in the near term, uh, Disinflation is still winning, uh, but that in part, that battle's being prolonged, I think, because basically you have on one hand, you are squeezing the private sector, uh, but on the other hand, you are actually exacerbating the, the public sector. Uh, mm. And so, you know, part of why a lot of these recession forecasts and, and kind of uh, transfer inflation forecasts haven't materialized as quickly as some people thought is because we're getting to the point where this is actually somewhat stimulative, uh, and it's offsetting some of its own effects. So I think that in the near term, disinflation's winning, but slowly. And I think the, the bigger risk is that the longer this goes on, eventually the private sector kind of normalizes, whereas mm-hmm. the public sector deficits are still there. And then I think we get another wave of inflation in the years ahead. Uh, and that'll depend on various factors, basically. I think the next time we have a growth phase, so the next time we have rising PMIs, rising economic indicators... Things like that, I think there's a good chance that inflation would return with it, um, uh, and so I think the the kind of the base case I'm looking at this decade is higher average inflation. Um, now, whether or not we get up to another period of like nine percent is unclear because that hmm. was, you know, that was like fifteen percent deficits uh, and injected kind of right right to the middle of the economy. Um, whereas I I think what we could experience is a longer and grindier type. Of inflation. Now, obviously, you know things like acute energy shortages or war, or you know tail risks can always give you crazy numbers. Uh, yeah. But in general, I, I think the, the the theme we're looking at is higher deficits, uh, and then structurally deficit-driven inflation, uh, kind of throughout the developed world, and, and especially kind of centered around the United States uh, in, in the decades that follow.
0: Hey everyone, we'll get back to the show in a minute, but just wanted to let you know that we've got our permissionless conference coming up. This is the one that we do with Bankless. It is the biggest and best conference in DeFi. It's going to be in Austin, Texas this year, September 11th through the 13th. If you've been in crypto for a while, you know that bear market conferences are the best conferences because those are the one that all the alpha's at. This year, we've got a phenomenal lineup of speakers and the topics that we're covering are insane. We're going to be talking about ZK Tech, rollups, account abstraction, MEV, app change, the whole suite of stuff. I cannot wait myself. So, because you're a listener of this podcast, you're also going to get a discount. Type in pods20 and you're going to get 20% off your ticket. Click the link at the bottom of this episode and go get it now because prices go up every two weeks. You know, one of my favorite lessons that you imparted, Lynn, in this article that we're referencing here is I loved your check uh, to one of the great macroeconomic traders of all time, Stan Druckenmiller, and actually correcting him on the the record that see we have, he, and it's a statement actually I've repeated a couple of times on this show, that we've never solved after inflation CPI headline has gone over 5%. We've never solved that without bringing Fed funds above headline CPI, which we have done, not above core PC, but above headline CPI. But you actually corrected that and said that we did in the 1940s we actually held rates extremely low and then inflation moderated so for folks who are a little bit more unfamiliar or not as familiar with that time period can you just give us a little bit of a history lesson on what the inflationary forces looked like back then how the us responded and how that situation ultimately ended up resolving itself
1: sure so and i've used the 40s comparison a lot for the 2020s uh and yeah. when i when i point out what druckenmiller said in the article it's funny because i i caveat at that was saying like i don't like i don't i don't like to critique the grand master um yeah but it's just it's just a fact it's just something that uh you know whatever data set he was looking at probably didn't go back that far um and so in the 1940s well let's go back to the 30s so in the 30s you had the great depression uh you had rising populism uh frustrations uh in the u.s and around the world um uh that that almost in many ways directly fed into the conflict that happened uh, that that you know followed in the late 30s and into the 40s. Um, and during World War II, uh, you had obviously massive fiscal spending, just absolutely enormous as a percentage of the economy. Um, and although a lot of that was spent for, and really a lot of it gets cycled back. You're paying you know soldiers. Uh, it's kind of like a jobs program. You're 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 building manufacturing facilities. You're getting commodity um, production online. When those when those soldiers came home, they put eight million of them through uh, uh, technical school and college. They gave them uh, mortgage assistance, things like that. And, and part of what they were trying to do was, you know, in, in World War One, when soldiers came back, they just kind of gave them a bus ticket and said, thanks for serving your country. Um, and one of the issues that, that, during that era is that you had the rise of the Soviet Union and you had in, in the United States, you had some communist sympathies that people were saying, maybe that is a better model. And it's like, look what, look how they treat us. Like, you know, and it's like, so one thing that the West did was try to say, okay, we'll, we'll go 10% of the way there. We'll, we'll fix some of the imbalances. uh, We're not going to go full communist. So it's like, okay, let's, let's, um, let's do these kind of programs, right? We're going to, this time when soldiers come back, we're going to make sure that they're brought into the economy better, uh, kind of things like that. Um, And so you had a, a, a very rapid, very large deficit, very rapid money supply growth. And then, as one would expect, very rapid inflation. Um, And again, it wasn't caused by bank lending. Banks were barely lending. It was almost all fiscal uh, deficits. And it was monetized by the the Federal Reserve. Uh, They didn't call it QE, but it was was QE. Uh, They were creating new bank reserves to buy um, bonds. Um, And back then, the Fed was captured by the Treasury. So the Fed didn't really like it. But they were told, look, you have to fund the war. Um, and so basically, they did yield curve control, kind of like what Japan's doing today, where mm-hmm. right now, you know, Japan has inflation above their target, but they're still holding rates, you know, in that spectrum around zero. Back then, the United States would hold short duration rates at just over zero, and they held long duration rates at 2.5%. And the way that the mechanism that they did that was they say any bond that tries to trade over 2.5%, or put another way, if it trades below a certain price, we have an open bid to, to buy that, um, and so they had this kind of like low artificial but but positive yield curve submerged below the inflation rate. So you'd have inflation spike up to nineteen percent, and that whole short short term and long term interest rate complex was just locked there. Uh, and so if you held cash or bonds, you just got killed on a real basis. Uh, you basically it was it was kind of like um, classic inflating the debt away. Um, mm-hmm. And after the war, they pivoted towards austerity. Uh, They had, you know, the demographics were very different. You had tons of workers for every retiree. Uh, You had a very unified economy, uh, like a unified population, like a lot of uh, kind of we're in this together type of mentality. And so you had a very productive period uh, as, you know, some some of those war funding stuff was kind of repurposed towards domestic manufacturing. Uh, and they, again, they pivoted towards austerity. And so the the primary way to get inflation down was to stop the source of inflation, which was the large fiscal deficit. So they by by essentially defaulting a part of that debt through inflation, and then by directly tackling the cause, the the deficit, they managed to enter this kind of next period. And uh, you know, I think the challenge now is that we have in some ways, a similar but less extreme scenario. With the difference being that there's no end in sight this time. It's demographics-driven. It's top-heavy age population. Um, The United States has like our healthcare costs per capita are like two and a half times what Japan's is, uh, even though Japan's on average ten years older. Um, So we, you know, when you when you add military spending, Social Security, Medicare, uh, and just the overall demographics picture combined with our tax structure. Uh, We just have just these structurally large deficits that are just going to continue for for no end in sight unless it's reformed. And that is money that's kind of is just
0: going to keep pouring into the economy. So, you know, you, you mentioned that you took a lot of inspiration from the 1940s, and you can certainly see some of the similarities just in terms of fiscal policy. And then I guess negative real interest rates are the other similarities. So, you know, do you predict that out into the future over a period of time? And then what are the consequences if that ends up being the case?
1: So I think, in general, we are going to see, on average, uh, negative real rates uh, this decade. Uh, Now, like right now, we're in a period of of trying to be as hawkish as possible. Mm. Uh, So you can certainly get above. You can get positive real rates for a period of time. But when you just run the math for how much debt there is compared to the size of the economy, it's very hard or impossible to make that work on structurally positive real rates. I think one way of thinking about it is that you know if you run the numbers just as on the U.S. So what is what is debt relative to revenue? What is debt relative to income? I mean income is negative because you're running deficits. Um, you know you do all the numbers and it's it's a it's an uninvestable company if it was a, if it was a company. It's just it's just it's it's like below junk. Um, and so that debt has to default. In one way or another, and the question is how. And if you control your own currency, you're very unlikely to def- to default nominally, and so instead you default through money printing. Um, and so I I think the general trend we're gonna see is, you know, in the near term. Uh, I mean, I like cash equivalents. I mean, if you can get five percent on T bills and money markets, I mean, that's pretty attractive. I know. Um, yeah. But I think on average this decade, um, you know, basically I think. Rates are going to spend most of their time not really keeping up with inflation, and certainly not keeping up with like true inflation, right? So when you when you look at you know inflation over the past let's call it hundred years, um, you have a number for CPI, but that number is kind of always resetting towards slightly lower in goods. Like if if ribeyes get expensive, people stop buying ribeye, they buy ground beef, and then the, the thing adjusts downward towards that new reality. Mm-hmm. And so if you kind of break it into categories. You know, like fine art and waterfront property, that increases roughly at the rate of money supply growth because you have this finite asset um, that you can't make more of, and money supply is growing, and it's almost a one-to-one correlation um, over a long enough stretch of time to, you know, take into account volatility. And then below that, you have things that that are pretty energy intensive, uh, things like gold or oil or beef. Those things are generally increasing. Higher than the rate of CPI over over a you know multi multi decade time frame, um, because they're they're not quite as fast as the money supply growth because we are getting somewhat better at making them. We have better techniques for getting gold. We have better techniques for getting oil, uh, for you know getting cows, uh, all that kind of stuff. But it's still quite energy intensive and and labor intensive and all that. And then when you go down towards like the the lower end stuff, I mean you get electronics. That's just outright deflationary. Uh, textiles are deflationary. Um, we have all these kind of things that we've gotten way better at making. Plastic toys. We have this kind of long tail of of things that are really not not scarce almost at all, and that's really dragged down our average CPI. Um, and so when we look forward, I think that anything that is has some degree of scarcity to it um, is, is what you really want to look at for for kind of the quote unquote true inflation rate. Is kind of that the top like half of the asset spectrum. Whereas, of course, you know, software, AI, um, all sorts of things are going to continue to make certain types of things very abundant.
0: Yeah, there was an interesting dynamic that you pointed out. If the rate of interest is below the rate of inflation, you sort of have this incentive to why wouldn't I take out a three percent mortgage if inflation is at five percent to buy a home? I mean, you're basically getting paid in real terms to take out a mortgage. So there are these weird incentives that sort of emerge in these environments, you know.
1: Yeah, and one of the challenges. So going back to the the question of of whether or not rates tackle fiscal driven inflation, one of the one of the hard parts that policymakers find themselves in when that happens is that both answers are wrong. So if they if they raise rates, it increases the deficits, and that pours more money into the economy, which is the source of inflation to begin with. Um, on the other hand, if they hold rates below the rate of inflation structurally, like they did in the '40s, then every single speculator says, "Well, why wouldn't I?" borrow money at that artificially low rate while you're pouring money into the economy through deficits and buy something hard with it. And so normally, those types of environments are associated with capital controls. They want to basically give the government a lower funding cost, but also trying to prevent new money creation through excessive lending in that, in that new environment. And so in the United States, they, I mean, they banned gold. Uh, they had all sorts of capital restrictions, same with the UK. Uh, you know these these economies that were kind of uh, you know uh, more open were now became more restrictive, and we see signs of that today. I mean, Turkey, for example, is trying their policy of low rates uh, in the face of inflation. But then every single person's incentive is well, I might as well buy, I might as well borrow lira and buy anything else with it. If you're going to hold rates like well below the inflation rate, and so they have to come in and say, well, you know, we're not going to let you borrow lira to buy dollars, for example. We're not. So they have all these like. Restrictions on who can borrow lira and and things like that, and then we see you know Nigeria, Argentina, they cut off crypto exchanges from their banking system. Uh, it's all these different ways to try to make to try to add frictions to various entities that either want to leave uh, the ledger or that want to borrow the ledger to buy some sort of harder asset. Um, and so that's kind of the challenge when you have when you when you, when the inflation itself is is driven by the public sector um all the tools to deal with it uh whether you're hawkish or dovish they they're just generally not the right tools because it's just it's not a monetary phenomenon it's a well it's a monetary phenomenon but it's it's channeled through the fiscal uh rather than due to due to loan creation
0: What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue-chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old they can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin10 for a 10% discount and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code Margin10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. Yeah. So, you know, at the risk of posing a very high level and and difficult to answer question, what is the end game for the current scenario that we're seeing here? Because on the one hand, from, from my perspective, it's alarming enough to see the United States run the fiscal deficits that we are. And frankly, it's not even in the zeitgeist. I mean, you're just starting it to see it. You know, Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin, <clears throat> the Democratic Senator actually stood up and stopped us from spending even more, which was great and gives me a little bit hope that some senators still think like this. Some of our policy members are still concerned with this type of thing. But for the most part, I, I don't really see it being a, a gigantic campaign issue. And on top of all that, you're starting to see geopolitical tension ratchet up. You know, U.S.-China relations have probably never been worse. You know, we're sort of in the process of potentially, maybe not totally reshoring, but kind of moving to this more multipolar world and changing the way our supply chains are structured. And then all of this, you know, there's this always sort of all roads lead back to the dollar, and there's a constant question of is, is this going to remain the global reserve currency and how sticky is it really in the system? You know, even zooming out more than we've talked about so far, how how do you see the end game playing out for this sort of cocktail of geopolitical and financial instability?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. And, and we can go back a couple of decades to have a little bit of insight into this. So in the late eighties, um, due to the attempts of the fed to fight inflation by raising rates so much, uh, it, and then you had, uh, 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 during the 80s um, you know partially for the cold War and other reasons you had Reagan building up quite a bit of public debt so we went from 30 percent to well to way above that and so the combination of high rates and and large deficits did start to actually cause quite a lot of uh, interest expense by the government um, after a long enough period of time and the late 80s and early 90s was kind of the peak period back then for concerns around the the sustainability of public finances so that the famous debt clock, uh, was put in place in the late eighties. Um, and then you had, uh, uh, you know, Ross Perot run the most in, uh, successful independent, uh, campaign in modern history. Mm-hmm. And his big thing was the debt. Um, yep. and so that era, the zeitgeist was really, you know, you're, you're hitting crate, you're hitting like trillion dollar numbers for the debt. Uh, it's completely unsustainable. And they ended up being like 30 years early. Because right, right when they were like yeah. in their crescendo of how bad this is, and you know all their reasoning was right, but then you had the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, opening up of China, uh, and you had this kind of thirty year period from say the early nineties to the late twenty tens of rapid globalization. So we, we we brought on a billion people into the into the global capital uh, labor force, uh, you know, Western capital and Eastern labor all kind of come together. Um, you had this, this this profound period of of um, productivity. You had structurally lower interest rates for decades, which then allowed that debt. So that even though the debt to GDP kept increasing, the uh, interest expense relative to size of the economy was was you know flat to down. Uh, you had peak demographics in the U.S. So you know in the late '90s, early 2000s, you could run a surplus because you know those baby boomer generation was in now their peak like earning yield years, um, and so. Basically, for thirty years, like those guys looked really, really wrong, and then you started the, the Zeitgeist come, came to be. The debt doesn't matter. Look at all those people that were alarmed about it. it you know, it, it's not really an issue. And I think the challenge is that going back to your your question, that thirty-year period's kind of behind us now. Uh, now we're in this period of uh, you know maybe deglobalization, or at least we're not globalizing the rate we were. Uh, even if we keep our gains, we're not we're not just rapidly globalizing anymore. Um, and so we have, and then now we have much higher debt to GDP than we had before. So even even smaller gains in interest uh, result in much larger interest expense relative to the size of the economy uh, from the public sector. Um, and so I think that the same concerns that were present in the late 80s and early 90s are 30 years later re-emerging their head. Uh, and this time there's no offset. There's no you know, we can't have another 30 years of structurally lower interest rates. We don't really have another 30 years of globalization. Uh, you know, we have some productivity offsets from you know, AI and software and things like that. Um, but when it, when it comes to labor and energy and, and things like that, um, those are real constraints. And so I, I think in general, we're going to face more average inflationary pressure. Uh, the debt's going to be more of a political thing. Um, I think you could see the politicization of interest rates. We've already seen it. Some example, we have Elizabeth Warren grilling Jerome Powell in Congress. Um, yeah. I, I think you could have similar dynamics where you get political parties based on, you know, like like uh, the interest rates become more of a partisan issue. At the moment, we don't really see that too much because, for example, we don't see Biden, uh, you know, joining uh, Warren for going after the Fed. Uh, right now, he's fully supportive. Um, but I think- on a long enough time frame, you could see parties start to, like, like, like interest rates become a, a political discourse that we don't really see right now. Um, and so I, I think that's like a, a longer concern. And as far as the end game, I, I think the big question comes down to whether or not they're able to reset this and keep it going, or if this is just kind of an era that ends and we enter a new era for money. Um, and so if they if they're able to kind of do what Israel did decades ago. Um, or do what a lot of developed countries did in the '40s, and they say, "Okay, we're going to burn a lot of this debt off, and then we're going to pivot and and we're going to get austere." That's kind of the bullish case for how this ends, which is you know, cash and bondholders get killed on a real basis, uh, things stabilize, and then we kind of build from there. Or you know, we enter just a whole new era where the dollar kind of um, enters a spiral. Uh, there's not enough political unity to do anything about it. Uh, it just keeps getting worse and worse. And you probably want to own things like Bitcoin and gold and, you know, hard assets and we enter kind of a, you know, we go through the looking class. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's extremely well said. You know, one of the I actually like the analogy a lot that you or this sort of historical reference that although there's separation in between the treasury and the Fed during periods of strife and stress, often those two end up acting in lockstep. Um, and at the end of the day, Congress can, you know, lawmakers have the ability to bend the Fed to their will, anyway. Yeah,
1: so. yeah, they can they can change laws. Um, you know, there's enough if there's enough uh, dis, uh, dissatisfaction, uh, officials can be removed. Um, and so, in general, that's that's just a, a reality that we live in. Is that the central bank is independent in the sense that you know we think of central bank independence, it means that the the president can't call up the central bank head. And say I got an election in a couple of weeks. Can you go ahead and cut rates? Um, that's what you see. That's kind of a banana republic type of activity. That's uh, you know a country with weak institutions. That kind of thing is possible. Um, or the president can just say I don't like that person, just fire him. Um, when there's more separation of institutions, more rule of law, the hurdle rate for causing that centralization, causing that capture is higher. Uh, mm-hmm. So it needs more people to do it but it's still doable. So during times of actual crisis, whether it's World War II, whether it's COVID, things like that, when, for example, whenever the treasury market gets a liquid, you always see the Fed step in. Um, And so when push comes to shove, independence does diminish.
0: Yeah, I would tend to agree with you there. So in the more intermediate right before this sort of end game, and maybe we go through the looking glass, or maybe we get a couple more decades because the policymakers end up, figuring something out. We kick the can even further. Cause that's always been the the worry for me a little bit. Is I feel pretty convicted in these trends that you're describing, but I think we've even talked about it on this show. But Jack Schwager, you know, he wrote a book called Market Wizards back in 1989. And you could almost copy paste a lot of the the interviews that he got at that period of time with big macro thinkers and traders onto what we're discussing today. So, you know, they didn't see the globalization back then. Maybe there's some trend that that you and I are are missing, but that's always been a concern of mine a little bit. But you know, in the more immediate time, you know, what are some of the the assets that investors should think about? So you've talked about hard assets. I definitely want to get into Bitcoin and digital assets in a bit. What about other things like you were really right on the energy trade for a period of time? What about things like gold, housing, whatever you think is you know kind of on a more cyclical instead of long term secular basis? What should investors be thinking about?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think a lot is so. I think when you look at say stock market capitalization to GDP, for example, mm. and other valuation measures, um, you know, I think we've probably seen the peak. Um, and I think that a lot of these crowded areas are not going to have great returns on a real basis, you know, depending on what inflation does, they, they could mm. have positive nominal returns. Um, but I think you're looking back a decade from now, um, you know, we're looking back from the peak in late 2021. I think that the um, the inflation adjusted Returns from some of these major asset classes is not going to be very attractive, and mm-hmm. the question is: some are some of these other asset classes going to be able to provide uh, some degree of alpha? So I, I think Bitcoin um, is an attractive one. Um, gold is challenging, um, but if you do enter a a really truly kind of sovereign crisis, um, gold is one of the things that central banks can use to to basically recapitalize their their system. Um, so I, I think gold is another one to have a position in. Uh, and then looking out, I mean, I do think that there are areas like Brazil or India, um, some of these um, kind of third party emerging markets um, mm. that I think that there are kind of interesting long term, like decade long opportunities. Um, and I, I don't think that the energy trade is is done yet. Uh, we haven't really seen even a capex cycle, right? So uh, we've not seen, for example, a whole nother cycle of bringing more oil online. Um, and in general, even though we saw this big spike in oil and this big this big fall in oil, oil producers kind of never really followed that spike. Uh, they never got over they never got over enthused. Uh, and then as the oil came back down, they're still appropriately priced for yep. the current level of oil. Um, and so uh, you know we're st- we're seeing early signs that u s. shale running into headwinds. um, so as you've seen lower oil prices and recessionary concerns, um, there's not a lot of reinvestment that, you know, the, the, what makes shale oil different than these other resources is that you need uh, rapid reinvestment in order to keep that production up. You get oil quicker, but you need to, you need to re- reinvest more frequently. And we're seeing uh, rigs go down, the number of rigs. And generally, when you see that decline in rate of change terms, usually energy production, oil production, uh, peaks some months later. Um, and so we're kind of seeing initial concerns that we might be getting somewhat towards the top of our oil production range at least in this cycle. Um, and so I, I still think in general the energy and commodity space is interesting. You just have to volatility manage it, right because if you go through a recession, if you go through other other periods, um, it can do very poorly. But I still think that's a, an asset class for this decade. And, and kind of the way of describing it is when we think of the 6040 portfolio, the problem there is that both bonds and stocks like, disinflation so uh bonds obviously like disinflation and then stocks they like structured lower and lower interest rates and no um constraints on materials and things like that so that all these big you know mega cap stocks can just keep growing and getting higher and higher valuations Uh, now one way to augment that portfolio is to have a section that is kind of a defense against inflation so it could be energy could be um You know, copper, materials, things like that could be hard monies like gold and Bitcoin. When you have that slice, it helps you, I think, protect the other two slices in a portfolio. Instead of having all of your portfolio geared towards disinflation, you know, have some of it that's geared towards disinflation. But then you have, uh, you know, a segment of it that's geared more towards inflation so that no matter what happens, you know, one, one segment will probably be carrying the other segment.
0: Lynn, do you have any opinions on real estate and maybe we could segment that between residential and commercial? Obviously, office space has been on the chopping block for some period of time now, and there's been a lot of sort of hullabaloo made about the amount of CRE debt that uh, regional banks hold. I think it's about 70%. Obviously not all commercial real estate is the same, industrial is very different from office space. Uh, residential real, space, real estate has frankly held up a lot better than I thought it was going to based on what mortgage rates have done. You know, What are your thoughts on the real estate sector in general?
1: Yeah. So if you look at residential real estate in linear markets, um, that's been holding up very well. And, and that's, you know, I, I, I was expecting, I wrote about that for a while. That's, that's the part that seemed pretty straightforward because nobody wants to sell. Um, and and the, the valuations, even though they came pretty high, compared to the growth of the money supply and things like that, they were not too um, extreme. It wasn't really like the 2006-2007 period uh, in many ways. Uh, there was not a lot of um, excessive leveraging, for example. Uh, in, in the linear uh, residential space. Um, when it comes to things like Airbnb's or real estate in certain um, expensive cities or some of these some of these countries like Canada or Australia, uh, where you have uh, pretty insane valuations, uh, I am I you know I I don't touch real estate there. Uh, I'm not interested. It's just it's it's kind of scary in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and commercial, like you said, there's very different types. There's multifamily um, there is, uh, you know, industrial, um, there's, you know, kind of retail facing and office is a pretty small part of it. And then only a segment of offices is, is distressed. Um, and so when you look at the domestic banking system, the large banks have very little exposure in, in aggregate to commercial real estate. And then the segment that they have exposure to office is low. Whereas when we look at small and medium banks, that's where there's like a time bomb because they have a yeah. lot of exposure to that commercial real estate. So I am concerned about commercial real estate. I'm concerned about the small and mediums uh, long tail of banks that all have exposure to it. Um, I think that's, that's one of the more troubling areas in the market. Um, and I think that's an ongoing disinflationary pressure that is being pushed on by some of these other inflationary pressures we talked about. So, although there are a lot of inflationary pressures, there are some of these disinflationary pressures as well. And those
0: are certainly some of the areas. Yeah. You know, I always find myself, my heart goes out to the small regional banks. I'm always rooting for those guys in general <laughs> because the, you know, you talked, you, you didn't use these exact words, but post end of World War II, there was a GI Bill, right? That was some of the programs that you were sort of indirectly referring to there. And there was three. it was, you know, uh, access to the credit. It was uh, mortgages, and it was education. What a great way to incentivize the younger generation, right? And right now, if you're a customer of a big bank, you're a small business. You're not their priority, and it's not because they're bad people. There, it's just because it's not within their business interest. It's completely rational. So I think that the small regional banks, while they're sort of they're kind of dying off in the United States, and it would be great to see more of them because those are the ones that fuel you know, small, medium businesses. And by the way, 66% of jobs, I actually learned this during COVID, are not held by big corporations. Corporate America, they're held by small companies. So
1: yeah, I think one of the overall challenges that in the system we currently have, um, the larger you are, the better source you have for capital. So for example, yeah. during COVID, you know, all these all these lending things basically shut off, whereas the Fed went in and kept corporate bonds liquid. So you know, if you were a large publicly traded company, you could still you could still roll your debt. Uh, but if you're a small business, uh, good luck. Um, yeah. And you know, even even before that, kind of the the whole leverage leverage buyout or private equity space is basically based on the premise that hey, we find these companies, uh, and we have a better cost of capital than they do. We can go in and buy them and lever them up with cheap debt, and then resell them. Um, or, or you have a large company that can make a, a business model out of just going around and acquiring tons of smaller businesses, mm-hmm. uh, because in addition to the overhead savings, it's really about capital savings, uh, and that's just kind of the structure we've been in for the past, you know, forty
0: plus years, and I, I do, I do think it's unfortunate. Yeah, I tend to agree with you there, Len. Talked a little bit about private equity recently. That buddy of mine sent me a meme that gave me a big laugh, which was. Do you ever have something that you used to love but now is shit? You have private equity to thank for that. <laughs> I, uh, if you've spent any time in the South, I I went to college in Atlanta for four years, and there are all these sort of PE type restaurants or sort of living centers, and yeah, you kind of just feel like you're being extracted, and there's not a whole yeah. soul there, you know. Yeah. But anyway, Lynn, we're we're drawing close to the end of our time here, and I understand that you have. A little bit of a, a book that's that's coming out. And you can't give us all of the, the detail, but if you have a little bit of alpha for the listeners here on what they could expect, um, yeah, give us a little bit of details about it and where they might be able to find out more information.
1: Sure, I appreciate that. So, late this summer or early this autumn, I have a book coming out uh, and it's going to explore the role of technology in money. Um, so, how how changing technology drove the evolution of money in the past and present, and then what it might look like in the future. Uh, and I, I try to Generally, what you see, especially among different types of economists, you see hard money people and soft money people always talking mm-hmm. past each other. So I actually dedicate chapters to try to take both of their views and see how they're talking past each other and kind of get to the foundation of what money is uh, and how, how it is operated historically in society. So I, I think people like this book, um, and it's something I've put in a lot of time to. So I, I think if, if someone's kind of interested in the foundations of what money is and in in terms of exploring some of the dynamics that you might not think about money um that are actually pretty powerful behind the surface, um
0: I think it'll be interesting, yeah, well, I cannot wait for that one. I've talked about it on the show before, but one of my favorite books ever is Niall Ferguson's Ascent of Money, and this feels like kind of the spiritual ancestor, and I just can't wait to read it. so um, we'll have to you know promote that when it comes out, but uh, really looking forward to that, Lynn, and as always, appreciate your time. this has been a fascinating conversation. So thank you. Thank
1: you. Thanks for having me on.
0: You bet. Cheers.